After a lifetime of researching the dynamic and enigmatic world of light entertainment, I've decided to ditch my notebook and meet the people who inspire me. What makes them the people they are? How do they feel about the show business landscape in which they find themselves? And in a world where anyone can be a star, is there still a need for performers who have universal appeal? Come with me on a journey of discovery as I get a unique insight into Britain's favourite stars with a little help from my glamorous assistants. Yeah, well, I say glamorous, more like hazardous. And of course, we'll have a bit of fun along the way. For over 40 years, Colin Edmonds has been writing for some of the cream of entertainment during a long and diverse career in comedy. Becoming synonymous with the career of the late great Bob Monkhouse in the 80s and 90s on a plethora of game shows, Edmonds has since inherited the infamous Bob Monkhouse joke book, which notoriously was stolen from BBC Television Centre in 1995. In the recent years, Edmonds has swapped scripted comedy for a murder mystery caper novel, entitled Steam, Smoke and Mirrors, which has attracted critical acclaim. And finally, the scriptwriter for many comedy greats has now expanded his illustrious repertoire into written fiction. I was fascinated to learn his views on comedy writing, TV legends, and after 40 years, why does he remain in love with the art of light entertainment? Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Colin Edmonds. Let's go back to the very beginning. You started selling jokes to Thames Television at the incredible age of 16. How did that come about? Well, it wasn't just to Thames Television I was sending my jokes. It was to other performers too, comedians, because I saw these comedians on stage and... I'd, on, the, on the end of television shows, I noticed there, were, there was a credit for writer, written by, and a series of names that I, I got to know very, very well as names. And I thought, well, if people are writing these jokes and people are writing these television shows, that's something I'd like to have a go at. I'd always liked writing. I'd always written stories. And English was... I was okay at English at school. My punctuation was never very good, and my punctuation still isn't very good. My, my writing has to be corrected by other people, because the comma will always be in the wrong place. But I love the idea of the, uh, the thought of writing something on the page for someone else to say. That really appealed to me at a very early age. And I was very fortunate, because I started wanting to do something when I had career aspirations. And I never wavered from that. And I never, and I got the opportunity to do it. And I've stuck it through, right through for more than, gosh, 50 years. And, and I consider myself very fortunate that having what had, wanted the ambition to write for television of comedians at a very early age and to be able to see it right through to now. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm very, very lucky. And what, what's all the more weird about it, with no talent at all, with no talent whatsoever, no ability to write, but I've managed to bluff and bluster my way through and cling to the wreckage, as Terry Wogan said. What it is, yeah, if you're, if you're 16 and you, you want to write, you've got to sit down and write, and then you've got to send it to people and you, to be judged, to ask them if they'd like to use it and if they can offer you any advice. And very often, you know, people will give you advice, Josh, they know you're young, and they think, oh, yeah, okay, he's, he's got tenacity, he's got ambition. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll advise him. And wh what's lovely is that now, 
some people are writing to me saying, I'd like to write jokes. How do I go about doing it? And, I, and it's lovely. But of course, my problem is um, it, it's changed slightly. It's slightly more difficult now to get into the industry. I had it very lucky. For over 30 years, you worked with Bob Monkhouse. As we all know, Bob was a very accomplished writer in his own right. With this in mind, how difficult was it to write for someone who was so in command of the English language? Oh, that was tough, um, because he was so articulate and so erudite, and he often used words that I had to go away afterwards and look up in the dictionary because I didn't know what he'd said. But after a while, you, get, you, you tune into someone. When you write for performers, you find that if you can hear their voice, you, and, and you have a pretty good idea of what they would say, that makes it much easier. If you can do an impression of somebody, uh, that means you can hear the voice very clearly. So, for example, um, the joke that you'd write for Bob Monkhouse would be written in a different form to the same joke you'd write, say, for Terry Wogan or for another performer. They, they use different words. And Bob was always very articulate in conversation, but he reduced that kind of intellectual art of conversation that he had in real life, uh, he reduced that significantly for performance purposes because he didn't want to be a smart art on stage. I, although I did, I did, I did once to say, I, I went to see a musical and I said, oh gosh, I said, it was terrible. I said, I said, it was a threnody. And Bob raised a quizzical eye and said, oh, yeah, there aren't many people in the world who know what a threnody is. <laughs> but little did he know, I'd looked up the word dirge and thought, I want a better word for dirge. Oh, threnody, that'll do. I'd never heard it myself before, but used it. And he went, oh, I know what you're talking about. So you were for always um, impressed and inspired by his remarkable use of words. And he'd never say this, the same thing twice. He'd always find different words to describe the same thing. Very clever art. And it comes from being so, first of all, so, I think, intellectual because he was a very, very clever man. Although he wasn't, uh, he didn't take his education beyond um, school. He didn't go to university. But because he was so smart, and because he was so well-read, which stems from his interest in life and things in general, that he absorbed these, these words and these expressions by osmosis uh, and had the recall to, to bring them into life in, in the form of conversation. Everyone who met him, was so impressed by his, his his articulate dexterity when using words in, in, in spoken form. Um, but, you know, it, it's like talking to everyone, like us talking to each other. You, you get to understand people's rhythms of speech and their patterns. And, and yeah, I suppose it took a few years before I really got on Bob's wavelength. But it took a good few many years of writing for Bob Monkhouse to become Bob's principal writer. So I, had, I was very lucky to had a good long run-in period before I could, use, I could work mm. for Bob properly. Throughout the 80s and 90s, right up until his death in 2003, you worked on a plethora of programmes with Bob. Celebrity Squares, Wipeout, The National Lottery Live, etc. Were you part of the Bob Monkhouse deal, so to speak? Yes, I was very lucky that I had the same agent as Bob, Peter Pritchard. Peter had looked after Bob for, oh, 20 years uh, before I pitched up on the scene. And 
Bob approached Peter to say, I'm getting some material from this young guy called Colin, Colin Edmonds. Um, would you take him under your wing as well and look after him? And Peter thought about it and said, well, I'm not sure, darling. I don't really handle writers very well. Um, um, Peter then figured, well, you know, if I could present Bob Monkhouse as my performer and then Colin Edmonds is his regular writer and Bob would be much more comfortable as the presenter of this show if he had a writer that he knew and had worked with in the past. Um, that, was a, that, was, that was a very, very good piece of um, negotiating leverage that Peter had. And of course all producers want to keep the, keep the um, presenter happy. So if it means the producer, the, the producer said, okay, if the presenter needs that writer, I'm going to buy that writer as well. So it did mean that I could come as part of a, a, a Bob Monkhouse package. So that was very significant and very fortunate from my point of view. But it, without blowing my own trumpet, I was around a long time before I became part of the Bob Monkhouse deal, as you eloquently put it. Um, and really, you know, it takes an awful lot of trust, an awful lot of work for a writer uh, to, to win a performer's trust. You know, it takes not a lot for, for a performer to think, yeah, I'm comfortable with this guy and I know he'll deliver. It's, it, it's not something that happens overnight. It's something that, that develops and grows. And I was very fortunate because I came from not the same background as Bob Monkhouse because my background is very working class. Uh, my, my dad was a plumber and my mum was a dinner lady. And, and Bob came from a very wealthy middle class background anyway. So to that, to that extent, our backgrounds were different. But I think our home lives were, were much the same. They were, um, in the sense that I know Bob's ma mother didn't approve of, of his girlfriends. And I know my mum particularly didn't approve of my girlfriends. And I used to have these conversations with Bob. And I, th I think he could identify with, with that aspect of my personal life. I you know, problem difficult relationship with my mother so did he but also I think he appreciated the fact that I, I was learning to write jokes at such an early age as he did and he knew what it was like to send jokes to comedians um, without actually knowing them and he knew what it was like to be rejected often and uh, so often you know you you sell you, you run a hundred jokes you're rejected 99 times and you might sell one and he knew what that was like and I think he appreciated my tenacity and my passion to want to do the job. And that's why I think we click so well. And also, he was a remarkable fellow. And I'm an unremarkable fellow. And I think that worked as well, in the sense that my working class background gave me a view of, of the world. And he, as a performer from a middle-class background, gave him a fairly lofty view of the world, a detached view. Mine was more, more streetwise, so I, I kind of knew in those days what young people were about, and he didn't. So I could bring that nice working-class edge to, his, to, to his, the great breadth of his material. And so I think that our relationship was worked on many, many levels. And it, it, I, know I was very fortunate. I, I earned a very lovely living, thank you very much. And he felt comfortable knowing that he could make a phone call saying, hey, look, Donald Trump's president, I need two jokes for tonight. Can you do them in half an hour? And six times out of ten, I could.
Bob Monkhouse wasn't the only comedy giant you worked with during the early part of your career. You also worked with Les Dawson on Blankety Blank in the mid-80s, notoriously a man of great intellect himself. Did this make writing material even harder? And can you tell us about the Les Dawson you knew? Oh, well, yes. Blankety Blank. Um, I first started on Blankety Blank when Terry Wogan was the original host. Uh, two or three series into Terry Wogan's tenure as the host of Blankety Blank, um, I was asked to write some questions. Uh, um, basically, you, you bring in a, a guy that writes funny stuff to write questions for Blankety Blank so that the questions generate fun and they inspire the celebrities to give amusing answers. Uh, and you can only be amusing if you've got some, some okay source material. I mean, it was my job and other writers' job to produce this source material. Uh, I then gravitated to le- uh, the late, great Les Dawson when he took over <laughs> Blankety Blank. And uh, I used to go along to Blankety Blank quite frequently and chatted with Les about everything except comedy. Whereas Bob was a great aficionado, an expert on comedy, Les wasn't really interested in talking about comedy. He wanted to talk about literature and characters. And we had long discussions, long discussions late into the night about Arthur Conan Doyle and Sherlock Holmes. He wasn't interested in the jokes he was doing at all. He was more interested in uh, getting an attitude to to Conan Doyle and his life as an ophthalmist and how he became a writer. And so the the company of Les was an education, not as it was with Bob in terms of comedy, but certainly in terms of becoming well-read, because Les was a a very fine novelist in his own right. He had several novels uh, published, but he, he was also very wise and knowledgeable when it came to other works of literature, writers, novelists. Um, Arthur Machen, Macon, he, he, he introduced me to a horror writer. Have you read any, have you read any of that last, lad? Have you read any of his? I said, I haven't. You've got to read some. You're, you're not an education unless you've read, you've read that stuff. And not that he spoke like that, but that's just my desperate attempt at um, <laughs> Liz, Dennis, uh, Liz Dawson voice. Liz Dennis' voice is complete. <laughs> but Liz, Liz Dawson was immensely friendly. He was immensely approachable. And to be in his company was a great privilege. And when we lost Les Dawson, we didn't know just lose a, a wonderful comedian. We, we lost a, a, a thoroughly decent human being who loved people, loved his jobs. And I think more important than anything, loved books. He loved reading books and he loved talking about books. And that was part of the privilege of being in, in Les's company. He once said, <laughs> he wasn't never, never terribly good at the rules when he first started at Blankety Blank. And one of the producers was a great BBC producer called Stan Appel. And I remember on one occasion, halfway through the recording, Les messed up the rules of Blankety Blank. And he looked at, at Stan Appel and he said, look, Stan, no point in frowning. You know it's crap. And I know it's crap, but we're still going to get through it. We hooted at the audacity of that, and the crowd loved him for it. And that's the thing, Josh, yeah. That's, that's, that's the great thing. It's more important than anything else. Forget the literature. The crowd loved him. The crowd absolutely loved watching him, and they loved listening to him. And as a person, you loved him, and you enjoyed listening to him.
Writing for comedians, I imagine, is an extremely hard task. Do they ever resent it? It's interesting. Yeah, it's a very good question. It's a question I've never been asked before. I never really considered it until now. So, yeah, it wouldn't surprise me if they did resent it. Um, not all, no, not all comedians. Most comedians, let's say, are immensely grateful for the backup because it gives them another attitude, another angle. Uh, your, your jokes about a certain subject come in a different way that possibly they hadn't spotted, and that's why people like Bob Monkhouse and, and those terrific intellectual comedians love the extra input. But yeah, maybe maybe people on television shows that you supply material for, yeah, they do resent it. Uh, especially when your stuff gets laughs. Oh, God, although they're getting laughs, some of them, and I won't name them, but they resent the fact that it's a joke you've thought of and they haven't. And they get furious that, oh, his joke got a laugh and my one didn't. Oh. And they, yeah, yeah, they, <laughs> they resent it. And they, oh, by goodness me, they can't wait. If, if a joke doesn't go well, they can't wait to get off and tell you that that joke didn't go well. Oh, that, that joke of yours died on his backside, didn't it? Oh, oh. And you think, well, you thought it was funny when you read it and you wanted to do it, just because it didn't get a laugh. It did not my fault. You thought it was funny too, to begin with. <laughs> it, it's, it's a funny relationship. Some performers use the same routines year in, year out. And when they're confronted with new material, fresh material, they're very nervous of it and they're very suspicious of it. Unless they've heard someone else get a laugh with that particular joke, they're very reluctant to use it themselves. And I was, guess I was fortunate with, with Bob and other performers of his ilk that, that they, they were prepared to rely on their own judgment. They could see on the page that something was funny. And Bob always used to, Bob Monkhouse always used to use a lovely expression. He said, yes, I think that joke will play. And I, oh gosh, I can see that from a performer's point of view. Yeah, that joke will play to the crowd. And he said something to me, Bob Monkhouse said something very interesting. He said, because I'd said to him, I'd heard an interview with John Lloyd on the radio. John Lloyd, the producer of, um, of, of QI now, and at that time the producer of Blackadder. And John Lloyd had said, you know, we study the script and we, we always look at the script so carefully. Now, is that funny? Can we make it funnier? Is that funny? Is that funny? Is that funny? And I said, I, th I found that very interesting. And Bob said, it is interesting, but that's not how I read a page of jokes. He said, if I read a page of jokes from you or somebody else, I don't look at the jokes to say, is that funny? I look at the jokes and say, will that get a laugh? And there's a subtle difference between something that's funny and something that gets a laugh. Because uh, you read something in the newspaper, which is funny, but you don't make that noise. You don't go, ha ha. Uh, Bob said, when you're with an audience of 300 people, 3,000 people, you want to hear that great crack of laughter, because that's what you're there for, to get that laugh. You don't want 3,000 people turning to, turning to one another saying, yes, that's very funny, isn't it? Yes, that's very funny. That's not the reaction. Will it get a laugh? And that was a huge education for me when it came to writing comedy. Will it get a laugh? You worked with the late, great broadcasting legend Sir Terry Wogan on BBC Proms in the Park. Again, like Bob, a man in full command of his audience. So in what ways were you able to help him shape his material? Uh, once again, you know, it all depends on whether you can hear the performer's voice. And of course, you, um, 
When Terry Wogan was on radio every morning, I think his voice was ingrained on, everyone, on the, the, the consciousness and the psyche of the entire nation. Every, everyone could speak like old hell. Ah, oh, now look here. And Terry had a few stock expressions. When you listen to Terry long enough, eventually they'd come round again. Ah, Edmunds, oh, the old scriveners at work. Which is a lovely thing to say. Rather, yeah, I've got someone writing some jokes. Terry would say, ah, oh, the old scriveners at work. I think it's lovely. But Terry had a wonderful sense of humour, as was witnessed on his radio show day after day, and with those terrific <laughs> Janet and John stories, which were filled with absolute mm. monumental mm. filth. How he got away with it, I do not know, but it was mm. Terry, and, and we all loved him for it. And, and to hear the joy in Terry's voice as he, as he tried to battle his way through these scripts, which admittedly I hadn't written, and I wish, gosh, I wish I had, I, but I don't think I could have done because I don't think I could have written them as well as the man that wrote them. That's as maybe. You hear Terry's voice and you know instinctively when, you're writing for, when you were writing for Terry what he would say. No, let me put that another way. You knew what he wouldn't say. You could write something and say, no, Terry wouldn't say it that way, he'd say it this way. And, um, uh, okay, yeah. The biggest compliment that anyone ever paid me, who was a producer at the BBC, a producer called Guy Freeman, who's big noise at the BBC now, he's the head of, of music events and all things musical at BBC, in charge of the Eurovision Song Contest. Years ago, I was writing those shows for Terry on BBC One, where all the songs for the Eurovision Song Contest were performed in front of the crowd, and the viewers were invited to vote for which song would go forward as the United Kingdom's representative for the European Song Contest that year. And I wrote my script and I submitted it, and Guy Freeman phoned me up and said, when I read this script, I can hear Terry saying it. And I thought, yeah, that's the point. That's why you've employed me. If you can't hear Terry saying it as you read it, then I've not done my job properly. And so... With Terry, you could get some okay jokes. They don't need to be zingers. But they have to be kind of half-decent. But Terry could sell them so well on that wonderful charm that he had. And people love Terry Wogan so much that they'd laugh on trust. The fact that Terry had said it meant it must be good. The fact that I'd written it meant it wasn't. But the fact that Terry said it a certain way it meant it just beautiful oh it was just beautiful and once again to be in Terry Wogan's company was, was to be in the presence of absolute greatness his, his use of words was he was like he was like a lexicon of of, of different word of wordplay and as I say to, to describe your writer as a scrivener <laughs> I, oh that was a that was a compliment some years ago, you decided to exchange gags for written fiction and write the acclaimed murder mystery cake, Steam, Smoke and Mirrors. Originally conceived as a TV comedy drama, what made you adapt it into a novel? Ah, uh, Steam, Smoke and Mirrors, yes. When comedy changed, suddenly comedy became rock and roll. It was the trendy thing to do. And a lot of hip guys were getting into comedy. And I knew then that 
never having been very fashionable myself. I've never been at the epicenter. You know, Johnny Depp I ain't. I've never been the epicenter of cool <laughs> or fashion. And soon as comedy became the new rock and roll, I thought, mm, yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna find myself struggling now. And the new comedians coming through were using their own material. They had no real need for a writer like me. Or any comedy writer who wrote jokes and serviced comedians with, with comedy material. And the writing was on the wall. My career was kind of finished as a comedy writer. But I still wanted to write. And so I thought I might try and write a, um, a comedy drama for television. So I wrote a comedy drama about a Victorian magician. Uh, and it was okay, but it needed something else. It, something was missing. It needed another element. And I was all working on the internet, and I'd, I'd always loved this steampunk genre, which is basically a retro-futuristic Victorian era. So um, it, it imagines that in the Victorian era, people were using com steam-driven computers uh, developed by Charles Babbage, uh, and they could run around in steam-driven cars. Um, it's, it's, it's a fantasy alternative Victorian universe, really. But the fashion, if you get the chance to Google steampunk, the fashions and the ideas and the designs really are quite beautiful. And the pe people who are involved in steampunk are so clever and so creative. And I thought, yeah, I'm going to impose the steampunk element on steam smoke and mirrors. Um, and I, I took it to a, a, a well-established um, producer called Jeffrey Posner, who you'll know, Josh as the producer of The Young Ones and a lot of Victoria Woods producer. Very clever fellow. And I had the audacity to send my script to him. And he called up with his partner, David Tyler, at Positive Productions and said, yeah, we quite like this. We'd like to produce this, please. But you need to change that, 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 and that. And when I read their notes based on my script, I thought, my gosh, they're absolutely right. They're fundamental flaws that I've, I've, that I've missed. So I changed my, changed my script and gave it to Jeffrey Posner, and he tried to sell it and couldn't. Couldn't sell it anywhere. Some people were very polite, and they said, yeah, we like the idea very much, but we can't possibly afford it. Building all that steampunk stuff is going to be too expensive for us to do. So it sat on the shelf there as a rejected television pilot for about 18 months, and I thought, well, you know, rather than having it sit there, why don't I turn it into a novel? I want to still be a writer. I still want to keep my fingers on the QWERTY keyboard because it's what I've always done. And so I turned it into a novel and I just got very, very lucky. The first publisher I sent it to wanted to, to, to publish it. What's interesting though, Josh, from my point of view and hopefully yours and your listeners, is that the book, the novel, is totally different to the original script. It's so much more developed. The characters are better. The story's better. And so in a way, I'm glad the TV script was rejected because it meant I could write a novel that I was really proud of. So how different is it to write a book than it is to write a TV drama? Oh, writing a book, you can take such liberties because you haven't got the, the, the cost constraint. You're never worried about the budget. So if I want to write about my, my characters, Michael and Phoebe in Steam, Smoke and Mirrors, getting aboard an airship, uh, which is dressed up rather like... Jules Verne's Nautilus. I can describe the leather chair, and I can describe the the uh, the the, met, the rivets in the metal, and I can describe the plush velvet carpet, 
and the beautiful walnut dashboard, knowing that I'm painting the picture for the reader's mind rather than a producer or designer going, how the hell are we going to do this? <laughs> this is in his head. You can't do this in, pra in practical terms without it costing a fortune. So it's different to that extent, but also it gives you the opportunity to give the reader more of an insight to the characters. And it's interesting because I was writing my story based on the original television script and got to a point where I thought, oh my gosh, they're going to be attacked. I never saw that coming in the TV script. It certainly didn't happen in the TV script, but where did that come from? So you get it down quick because it's a new idea that's, that you, you can impose on the story. Uh, and I do find the, the process of writing novels infinitely more fascinating than writing stuff for television at the moment. In your opinion, to what extent is the sole comedy writer dead? A comedy writer in, in the manner that I used to fulfil that function. Um, not dead, but very, very, very severely truncated, much smaller. There used to be dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of writers all submitting jokes and sketches and comedy material to television shows and performers. That's not the case now. Uh, most successful performers write their own stuff. They write their own material because, as you probably noticed, Josh, that most comedians' routines are autobiographical. This is what happened to me. This is what happened with the kids. That's what happened with the wife. That, this is what happened when you're driving along the road. The, 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 all their comedy is born of personal experience which is something that I, I, as a writer, can't impose on them. Only they know that better than I. And I think it's probably right and proper that if that's the way that they're going to perform their acts, that's the route they want to go in performance, then it's right and proper they write their own material. There are a few great comedy writers. Uh, Rob Colley, particularly, who writes the jokes on Strictly and writes for Graham Norton. Um, he, he joined Bob Moncass and I when we, we did the lottery and you looked at Rob as a new writer and thought yeah he's really good he, he's got it you know and Rob's still pressing on manfully and supplying jokes to Have I Got News For You and Mock The Week and those kinds of shows which still use writers but the the number of writers per se who sit at home behind their word processor just churning out jokes for other people is is much reduced now uh, so not dead, but, but hanging on, I, should, I would say. You're still working on BBC Radio 2's Friday Night is Music Night. What is your role on that show and what's the secret of its success? Uh, the secret of Friday Night is Music Night, or the success of Friday Night is Music Night. I think it's, it's longevity is born of the fact that the, the producers uh, and the BBC Concert Orchestra just produce beautiful music. They play, they they play tunes every Friday night that people want to hear. Or they tell stories that people uh, don't know. Uh, my role on Friday night is a very minor role. Uh, just occasionally, uh, the producer, Bridget Apps, a remarkably clever woman, oh gosh, she's so clever, she will find herself rather busy and she will find herself presented with a, a guest presenter like, say, Craig Greville Horwood who's one of the judges on Strictly Come Dancing. And Bridget will phone up and say, look, I've got Craig Greville Horwood coming on to do a Friday night's music night. Talking about, the music will be about his life in dance. Could you write the script for me? 
And Bridget's only asking because she hasn't got the time to do it because she's busy doing other shows. And I might be able to give Craig maybe a few more jokes than maybe Bridget could. Uh, so that's my role, really. But once again, going back to what we said, as long as you can hear the performer's voice, it's, easy to, it's easier to write for them. It's very curious. I, I'd never met Craig Revelhoard, and but I, but I kind of knew what he'd say. And I knew that if I made it, I don't know, not camp, but I knew that there was one particular... I read Craig Revelhoard's autobiography, and he said that he was very interested in the tarot. So that led me to think in terms of a link, which uh, I had Craig say, I suggested, I didn't have Craig say at all, I suggested that Craig might say that, uh, of course, I was very interested in the tarot uh, and, and fortune-telling, um, not because, just purely for the reason that I could wear hooped earrings and wear a mystic Meg bobbed wig. I could do that any time, darling. And, and that got a, the way Craig performed that particular joke, really got a nice laugh from that crowd. It's the way he said it, the way he sold it, and, and he'd put in the darling, which I didn't dare put into the script. But I knew that that was an area that he could maybe get some fun with. And sure enough, he grabbed it and, and, and went for it in a big way, and it went very nicely with the audience. So my role in Friday Night is, is enables me to write for people as diverse as uh, Craig Revel Horwood, Dick and Dom, Paul O'Grady, who I have worked for in the past, uh, for, oh gosh, that was a belter. I had to do Wayne Sleep. Wayne Sleep I wrote a script for. And I know nothing about ballet music. Wayne was uh, introducing this Friday Night's Music Night about ballet dancing. I, know, I said to Bridget, I know nothing about ballet. She said, well, if I give you the information, you just, can you just smarten it up a bit? And so, yeah, I that's the thing I do. Yeah, I, I get a Friday night music night script and I smarten it up a bit, just make it a bit more light for the audience. So my, my, my role is insignificant compared to what the conductor and the orchestra do because they're the show and they are fantastic. Without wanting to sound like Parky interviewing Tarbuck, we have a mutual friend who also works on Friday night's music night. Do you ever find yourself working with the great Mike Dixon? Oh gosh, I've known Mike Dixon for a, quite a while, 20 years at least. We first met when we were doing the Brian Connolly television show at London Weekend. He was the musical director and I was the script editor. Uh, and it, Mike Dixon's one of those people you get on with instantly. He's such a decent, uh, nice man. Oh, he's a, he's a lovely man. And, and, and how he can command a 70-piece orchestra uh, is, 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 is a joy to behold. Um, Mike told me a very interesting story. He said, uh, "He said when I got my first job as a conductor, I thought I need to buy a baton to con." Because you know, yeah, because I said, "Sure, I can, a conductor is just a man who stands in front of all those people and waves a stick in the air." And he said, "Well, yeah, pretty much that's it. <laughs> that is what a conductor does. But there's an awful lot more to it than that." And he said, "I went along to this shop, which is rather like that shop where you buy your wands before you go to Hogwarts. It's a dusty old shop." And, and these conducting battens are in these boxes. Now, I don't think the baton actually finds the conductor, as he does in Harry Potter. But Mike said, I bought this, this baton. Yeah, that feels nice. Now, mm, now, I'd better buy six, just because they're going to break, and they're gonna, uh, you know, I'm going to lose them. And Mike said that was 40 years ago. 
And he said, I'm still using the first baton that I bought. And I've got five that I bought all those years ago, which I've never had to use. Because <laughs> although it flings out of your hand from time to time, you know, they don't break because they're not doing anything. You're just mm-hmm. waving. Um, and just occasionally, I think on three occasions, I've had the opportunity to work with Mike Dixon on Friday night, his music night. And I've got to tell you, Josh, you've not lived unless you've sat in the audience of Friday night's music night and seen Mike Dixon conduct the 70-piece BBC Concert Orchestra playing the theme from the Avengers. Oh, my God, it doesn't get, it doesn't get better than that. Yeah. Oh, my word. It, oh. Yeah. You're seeing one of your musical heroes out there conducting that kind of stuff. Yeah. To say you've had a varied career is an understatement. Throughout the 90s, in parallel with your work with the great Bob Monkhouse, you also worked on the action game show Gladiators. It seems amusing that they needed a writer on such a physical-centred show. What are your memories of working on this cult game show? Oh, Gladiators. Gosh, it was a, it was a huge show in, in every manner and form. Every shape, manner or form. It was, it was um, performed in front of a, an audience of 6,000 screaming fans. Uh, at the National Indoor Arena. And uh, originally, my role was to support uh, John Fashnu and Ulrika Johnson, who were um, the two presenters. Uh, and bear in mind, Gladiators was an American show, which Nigel Lithgow, the producer, brought across to this country, uh, London Weekend produced. And those first six shows at the National Indoor Arena, none of us knew what we were doing, including the presenters. And I was feeling my way. And, and Series two was... A, was so much better because Ulrika Johnson knew what she was about and, and John Fashion was extremely good. And so my role of working with those as performers and conducting, writing interviews with the various gladiators and the various contenders was slowly diminishing. But in the first series, my role became involved in writing the commentary for John Sachs. And in the second series that role developed even more because I wanted to put more jokes into the commentary. I wanted to put more jokes and felicitous phrases uh, for John Sachs to read. Because how we used to produce, how they used to produce um, Gladiators was to film the show, edit the show, put it onto VHS tape, send the tape to me, and I would play it on my TV at home and write write John Sachs' commentary to the pictures. And that enabled me to play God, really. I could set up the fact that this contender was was rather arrogant and was heading for a fall. Oh, yes, oh, suddenly there's the fall he's had because I'd seen the tape and I knew he was going to have a fall. But it did enable the, the show to have another element, a comedy element in the commentary. And John Sachs was very proficient at sight-reading the jokes to the time code. It was, it was quite an art, which eventually we mastered, of getting the words to fit the pictures very smoothly. So this year you've written a new book. What is it about and what was it called? Ah, well this year, to be published on the 7th of September, I'm extremely excited to say, uh, will be Steam Smoke and Mirrors 2, the sequel. Steam Smoke and Mirrors, The Lazarus Curiosity. Uh, And basically I'm I'm extending the adventures of my two heroes, Michael Magister and Phoebe Le Breton, who are two music hall magicians in the Victorian era, sitting in that steampunk um, genre that, that I was talking about. Um, and their, their role is not just as stage magicians, 
uh, performing these illusions for, for a musical crowd. Uh, they've been seconded to the special branch to help solve the rather more mysterious and arcane uh, crimes and mysteries that, that occur in the in the Victorian era. Something that the Victorian police, we're just plain baffled governor, we can't work this out. Can you as a magician help sort this out? Because you see things that we don't, being a magician and all that. Not that that's any dialogue from the book, because hopefully the dialogue in the book is a bit more smart than that. So I've extended the adventures of Michael and Phoebe, and I've just started in the hope that the second edition of Steam, Smoke and Mirrors is successful. I've just started the third edition of Steam, Smoke and Mirrors. So hopefully by the end of the summer of this year, I'll have finished book three. Steam, Smoke and Mirrors. Maybe it's, maybe it's called The Masonic Curiosity. I don't know yet. Last year I had... The new book is The Lazarus Curiosity, and this new book's going to be The Masonic Curiosity. So hopefully, if I get three books in a row, I'll have a little cabinet of curiosities. So what's next for Colin Edmonds? Oh, I think just um, trotting out these books as best I can. Now, that's what I like to do. And if invited to do the occasional jokes for Jimmy Tarbuck or Les Dennis or Joe Pasquale, who's, who's a dear old friend of mine, um, yeah, I'll, I'll trot out my jokes for them. But primarily now I like to think I'm, I'm writing these novel books with only one book out. I'm just a bloke that's written a book at the moment. When the second book comes out in September, I'll be sort of getting on the way to being a novelist. And if I can get the third book finished and published as well, then I might be able to call myself a novelist. But not yet. But that's the plan, to be a novelist. Thank you very much, Colin. Always a joy, Josh. Thank you very much to our guest for being the subject of another Beyond the Title interview. If you like this, why not browse the website and see if there's anything else that takes your fancy. Don't forget to like our Facebook page to receive updates on forthcoming interviews and to see more information about me and what I do. Thanks again and hopefully see you next time for another Beyond the Title interview.